Tara, welcome friends. Wonderful to see you here today and we're celebrating the great I am. And uh, I was telling Doug that last Sunday we, we also sang a great song by Scott Frank, I Am, and Tara singing it this morning. And uh, we cannot hear that too much, right? He is the great I Am. And I'm so grateful for uh, that praise this morning. Wonderful to see you here. Excited for this day God's given us of worship. I want to continue to ask you to pray for the folks that have gone out from us uh, to be a part of our church plant, Emmanuel Church, which got started last Sunday at uh, Farragut Middle School. And God gave them a great beginning with over 150 that were there in attendance. So they're just getting uh, formed and started, but continue to pray for them. We're thankful for this uh, kingdom expanse in church planting. And also, uh, as we pray for them who are being planted out in the Farragut area, this morning I thought we should pray for also First Baptist Concord. They have planted a new church that's in the West Hills community. What a wonderful opportunity to continue to reach people. So we're sort of exchanging blessings with each other, right? And we're thankful for the opportunity to just see churches partnering together. Aren't you thankful for schools around this community being filled up with churches, right? Who's, right, I am. Who said there's not prayer in schools? I'll tell you, there's prayer in schools every Sunday morning. And someone has said, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in schools. I can guarantee you that. Lord, we come, we thank you for the opportunity to be involved in your kingdom, the kingdom of the great I am. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and you reign king, eternal, immortal, the one and only God. We thank you for the privilege of partnering together as brothers and sisters and with other churches and sharing the kingdom of Christ and the message of the gospel. And we do pray for the brothers and sisters beginning the new church plant from First Concord in the West Hills community. We pray you'll bless them as they gather there at West Hills Elementary today. May it be a wonderful beginning. We bless them today. And bless Emmanuel Church this morning. Make it a great day for them. And now, Lord, we pray. As the little boy prayed, Samuel, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And all who agreed with this prayer said, amen. amen, amen. Now, if you would, take your Bibles, please. Turn with me again to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, you found the New Testament. 1 Peter, if you'd like to use the Bible that's provided for you there and share in front of you or right behind you, there's page 1016 of that Bible. And we're 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing our series. We took a couple of weeks off as we had the launch of our church and for some special emphasis about that. And last week as well, reminding us of this great God that we serve. But now we come back to this series for these remaining few weeks from 1 Peter, which reminds us that God has called us to be truly his exiles. Uh, we're on our way home. Here is not home, right? We're on our way home, but while we're on our way home, we're to live lives that are excellent for his honor and his glory. And this morning we come to an amazing passage of scripture. It's one of those passages of scripture that I don't know that any pastor would, would select unless he's preaching through a book of the Bible. And that's the reason it's good for pastors to preach through books of the Bible because it requires you maybe to deal with passages that might not necessarily be those that you would just on your own select, but it is the word of the living God. And this is an amazing passage. And when I have studied over this week, I've been reminded of something that Peter said about the writings of the Apostle Paul. You might remember at the end of Peter's second letter, he said that our beloved brother Paul writes in his letters some things hard to understand. Remember that? 
And I'm thinking that the Apostle Paul, after he might read, have read these verses, would say to Peter, look who's talking, all right? <laughs> these are some things hard to understand. And so this passage this morning requires careful interpretation. And yet I want you to see this morning that as we take time to look at it carefully, it gives us some delightful inspiration in our hearts to live faithfully for Christ. Now our text this morning is found in 1 Peter 3. We're going to begin reading at verse 13. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Here is the word of the Lord. Now... Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Now Peter's theme throughout much of this letter reminds you is suffering. It is a book that has a lot to do about suffering, but suffering as a Christian, suffering for being a Christian, suffering as part of God's plan to bring about his incredible purposes. There's so much in this letter that's about suffering. There's the theme of suffering now, but glory to come. And in our suffering now, the glory of Christ being made known in our lives. So when Peter is talking about suffering, he's talking about this kind of suffering. Sanctified suffering. Sanctified suffering. And that is where the Lord has us this morning in our focus. And I cannot think of a time in the recent life of our fellowship when there have been more people than I'm aware of that in various ways and forms are going through times of great suffering. Physical, emotional, spiritual. And yet through the power of the great I am, it's wonderful to know, isn't it? That when we suffer for Christ and in Christ, it's a holy suffering. It's a sanctified suffering. This is a very timely passage for us as a church family. Now, I want you to notice here as we open up this very amazing passage that 
Peter gives us some reminders. He gives us some reminders. Our reminders for sanctified suffering. Reminders for our sanctified suffering. And Peter says that the call for us as a Christian. Notice this. He begins very clearly that the call for us as Christians is a call for us to be zealots. Ever heard someone called a Christian zealot? Well, we are called to be Christian zealots zealots for good. He says in verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous? You see that verse 13? Zealous for good. We can have confidence that God is on the side of the good. Sin can't win and faith can't fail. God is is on the side of the good, or we should say the good is on the side of God, right? And so ultimately, there is this victory, this, there's this winning through God. He says, ultimately, no one can really harm you, ultimately and eternally. But Peter did not say, he did not say that Christians would not suffer. He did not say that Christians would only know blessing and prosperity. That is not true. Christians know, experience deep suffering. In fact, it's just the opposite. Look at verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer, even if you should suffer, if you do suffer, and the idea here is yes, that you will suffer. But now there's a timeless question here. Here's the question we get asked so often. How can suffering be good? How can suffering be good? Well, the answer, suffering is good when it is sanctified. It is a suffering which we could call it a gospel suffering. That's what Peter is talking about here. He's talking about gospel suffering. Suffering that has to do with the gospel, the, the message and the reality of Jesus Christ. He says gospel suffering is for the sake of the gospel. When is gospel suffering gospel suffering? It's when it's for the sake of the gospel. Notice verse 14, he says, even if you suffer for righteousness sake. Do you see that? For righteousness sake. And then again, verse 17, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. To suffer for doing good. What is God's will? Did you notice that? What is God's will? God's will to suffer for doing good. Because when we suffer for doing good, what comes from that is a gospel witness. And that is what gospel suffering is. It's for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Gospel suffering is for the purpose of sharing the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He says that this suffering is an opportunity to give a witness, a gospel witness for Christ. The great British writer C.S. Lewis said pain, pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. Suffering is God's megaphone to us. It's in times of suffering that we press in to listen to God. Pain is God's megaphone to us. But now, friends, let me also tell you, is 
that this is true, that pain is God's megaphone for us. It is from our suffering, from our trials and pain that God puts a megaphone to our voice so that we can share the gospel in a way maybe we never have before. Do you see that in verse 15? He says this, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now notice he says, be ready to make a defense. That's an interesting word. The Greek there for defense is apologian. Apologian. We get our word apology from that. But it it does not mean to apologize. The the word apologian means literally a defense, an answer, a reason. We get a study of theology called apologetics from this. The ability to give an answer, the ability to give a reason, the ability to know what you believe and why you believe it. And every Christian should be able to do that, right? Growing in that. That we know what we believe and why we believe it. And if you don't know anything else, you can say, just like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, that great theologian he was, but on his own deathbed, he said, I know two things. He said from his deathbed, I know two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great savior. He said, I know that. Do you know that today? Do you know that you are a great sinner? You are, and I am, but greater than your sin is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a great savior. I want you to know that today. Your sin may be great and you feel it, but look to Christ. He is a great savior. It's important to know what you believe and why you believe it. I might just say here that we're getting ready to encourage people once again to get connected in a group or an ABF or some training classes. All of those are so important to help you know what you believe and why you believe it. And you learn those things best in community with others. Friends, I want to tell you something. There are things that God will give you alone with him and the Bible. But I need to tell you There are things the Lord will not give you alone. He gives you in a community of others. He gives you with the insights of others and the help of others and you helping them. And that's the reason being in a community is so important. I hope that you make sure you're doing that. If you'd like help with that, there's... Tents outside, folks be glad to give you directions. I'd love to have you on a Wednesday night class I'm teaching. I'm actually in a couple weeks, I just felt led to teach a class on foundations. What does the Bible say about various, various doctrines and teachings? How does that apply to our life? Love to have you a part of that. But we've got to be something We've got to be very careful about something, rather, when we give answers to people. We need to be ready, Peter says, to give an answer. To make sure your right answer is always with a right attitude. You see, if your heart's not right, just keep quiet. Because truth not offered in love, doesn't help anybody. Guard your heart that you don't become a person with all the answers, but your heart's not right. Way too many Christians today are not known for their theological position. They're known for their emotional disposition. Be known for that Sweetness 
and gentleness of the way you share it. Look at verse 15. He says, show the gospel. In the suffering, show the gospel. Do it with gentleness and respect. How are you to answer? He says in verses 15 and 16, make sure you do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's a powerful witness when someone knows what they believe firmly. They have strong theological position, but they have a sweet emotional disposition. That's powerful. And the Lord can give us that. You know why? Because it says of Jesus that he walked this earth, listen carefully, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth. And when Jesus is controlling us by his Holy Spirit, he will help us to be people of truth and grace. And folks, there's never been a time more needed in our culture, in our culture where there is a growing tension and a growing opposition to people who hold forth the message of Jesus, who hold forth for absolutes of truth in this culture of greater opposition, and it is going to become greater, the Lord can give us the ability to have grace and truth, to give an answer for the hope we have in gentleness and respect. Now, Peter says that we, we need these reminders, but now I want you to notice something. He not only just gives us reminders, he, he takes us to our Redeemer and he shows us Jesus as our role model. Jesus is the role model for sanctified suffering. Jesus is the role model for sanctified suffering. No one ever suffered as Jesus did. But Peter says we must remember that Jesus suffered for a purpose. Jesus did not suffer as a martyr. Jesus did not suffer as an example. Jesus did not suffer as a great moral leader. Jesus suffered for eternal purposes to be accomplished. And Peter mentions three of them. Three of these purposes that come out of Christ's suffering. And what he's saying is, Jesus accomplished these purposes through his suffering. And we who are Christ's followers can accomplish these purposes when we suffer for righteousness. What are these? What are these Purposes. Well, Jesus through his suffering, look at verse 18 in your Bible. Jesus, Jesus through his suffering brought eternal salvation. He brought eternal salvation. Verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now, friends, you ought to note verse 18. That is a wonderful summation of the gospel. That is the gospel summarized. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel the greatest persecution, the greatest suffering accomplished the greatest purposes. Now, I want you to notice some things here. There's some words that I want to give you. These are not on the screen, but you might want to write them down. These are some words you need to remember about the suffering of Christ. The first word is this, Jesus' suffering was solitary. It was solitary. He suffered. Look at verse 18. He suffered once. Once for all. 
Jesus suffered. Only Jesus could do it, and he only had to do it one time. And when he had done that on the cross, what did he say? It is what? Finished. His suffering was solitary. Second word, his suffering was sacrificial. Sacrificial. He suffered, notice, once for sin. He suffered as a sacrifice for sin. That's why he died. He died as a sacrifice for sin. Over a hundred years ago, tremendous hymn writer, Philip Bliss, he and his wife tragically died in a train wreck. Philip Bliss died crawling back into the train wreck to save his young wife. He was only 37 years of age. But he left us some amazing truth in some hymns. We think about the sacrifice of Christ. He said in one hymn, these words, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior right what a savior Jesus death was sacrificial Jesus death here's a third word Jesus death and suffering was substitutionary substitutionary notice Jesus died once for sin the righteous for the unrighteous the righteous one in the place of the unrighteous one. Jesus took to his account our unrighteousness as sinners and he places to our account his righteousness when we believe in him as savior. He died once, the just for the unjust. It was a substitutionary death. The song goes on to sing. Bearing shame. And scoffing rude. In my place. Condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon. With his blood. What's the words? Hallelujah. Say it with me. Hallelujah. What a savior. His death was solitary, sacrificial. It was substitutionary. But thank God, it was sufficient, right? He died the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what Jesus died to accomplish, to bring us back to God. To bring us sinners who had forever been excluded from the Garden of Eden. Who could never get back to paradise. Jesus, by his death on the cross, offered such a sufficient sacrifice that he could bring us back to God. And that's the reason when he died, the Bible says that that veil in the temple behind which the presence of God in holy majesty hovered for the centuries. When he died, that veil was rent from top to bottom, meaning you can come to God through Christ. He's brought us not just to the outside courts. He's not brought us just to the inner court. He's not just brought us to the temple. Jesus has brought us back to God and now the one seated on the throne of heaven and earth is our father once again. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Church, Hallelujah. What? 
What a savior. Come on, wake up this morning. What did, what did Doug say? We worship him from our spirits. Christ, through his suffering, brought eternal salvation. But now I want you to notice this. Christ, through his suffering, brought eternal vindication. He brought eternal vindication. Jesus triumphed in his death. He triumphed in his death. It was in his death that he crushed the serpent's head. He triumphed over demonic forces. And that leads Peter to share some truth here. It's some of the most challenging in the New Testament to interpret, but if, if you'll just put some mental investment here this morning, you will get spiritual enrichment. So, so what I want us to do is just walk through what Peter says happened when Jesus died on the cross and immediately afterward, what happened? It's amazing. Are you ready? Verse 18. He says he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death. Notice this, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. He, he died in his body. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now the spirit there is not capital S. It doesn't mean Holy Spirit. It means in his spirit. He died physically on the cross, but his spirit did not die. His spirit did not cease to exist. What did Jesus say just before he died? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died, but his spirit was still alive. And now notice what it says happened as Jesus, alive in his spirit, dead in his flesh, his body died on the cross and he was buried, but still alive in his spirit, he did something. This is amazing. What did Jesus do after he died? Verse 19, in which in the spirit, his spirit. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now you know why Paul can say to Peter, really, you never wrote anything hard to understand. What? What's being described here? Well, let's just walk through it. He says, in which, look at that in verse 19, in which, in this spirit, He's, he's died on the cross. Now in his spirit, it says that he went somewhere. Where did he go? It says in verse number 19 that he went and he visited the spirits in prison. He went and visited the spirits in prison. Now there are many questions here. Who are they? Who are they and where are they? Where is this prison and why are they there and are they still there? Lots of questions. Well, let's try to answer them very quickly from the Bible. Number one, who are they? Who are these spirits in prison? These are demonic spirits. This is not the spirits of human beings. These are 
demonic spirits. These are spirits of demons. They are, notice, they are imprisoned in darkness. They are imprisoned. They're in, a, in darkness. They're, they're not in hellfire. They, they are spirits that are in darkness. They're imprisoned. They're in the abyss. They're in the bottomless pit. And it says they are captive there. Jesus went to a place where there were demonic spirits being held captive. Now, why they're there is not completely clear, but I believe we have the answer. If you have your Bible there, just turn over a couple pages to 2 Peter. Peter talks about these same spirits. He, in his next letter... You'll find that just a few pages over, page 1018. But Peter talks about these spirits. Who are they? Look at verses four and five. 2 Peter 2, verses four and five. That's a good sound of pages of the Bible turning. It's the wind of heaven. (laughs) I want you to know that Electronic devices don't make that sound. That's just all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm, that's not in the Bible, but I'm just saying that. Verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and the word hell here is not Hades or hellfire. Interesting, it's a place called Tartarus. That's the idea. He cast them into Tartarus. It's the idea of a prison. God cast some angels into prison. He committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept there until the day of judgment. And he talks again about Noah. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now notice, the Bible says there are angels who roamed the earth before the flood involved in the utter ungodliness of rebellion against the Lord, leading people and being involved with people in the most heinous ways in rebellion against God, God took those angelic beings, he threw them down into the abyss and locked them up until the day of judgment. And the next to the last book of the Bible is the book of Jude. You might wanna look there The book of Jude, turn over a few pages, page 1027 of your Bible. And again, we're just trying to answer the question, who are these beings that Peter is talking about? We'll look at Jude, verse six, only one chapter. Jude, verse six, same truth. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. The idea is they entered into mingling with humans, inciting rebellion and ungodliness and wickedness, habitating with humans. God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, go back to our text. Understanding that, who did Jesus go to see in prison? The Bible says that he went into that utter darkness. He went to that place where these angelic beings were held in judgment. And what did he do? Look at verse 19 in chapter three, 1 Peter. It says, he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He made a proclamation. The word proclaimed here doesn't mean preach the gospel. He, he, 
He made a caruso, a proclamation. He made a proclamation to demonic spirits who were held captive. He proclaimed, what was he proclaiming? He was proclaiming his victory. He was proclaiming that on the cross, he had just crushed the head of their general. And he had defeated forever their authority and he told them victory was complete. Captives were going to be set free. The spirits of the people who had believed in God being brought to glory with him and their eternal doom was sealed. That's what happened. (laughs) Jesus proclaimed to those angels who were vile and wicked before the flood, he proclaimed to them, I am the ark. And I have brought judgment to you. And all my people who are in me are safe. And I'm going to carry them through judgment to the new heavens and the new earth. That got Peter thinking about salvation. It got Peter thinking about water and baptism. Is he thinking about the ark and Jesus being that ark that brings his people to safety and makes them victorious over the wicked forces of hell? Peter says this in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this text, this verse, verse 21, has been very misinterpreted. It's been interpreted by some people to say that baptism is required to save you, that it is through the waters of baptism that your sins are washed away, that you must have faith in Christ, but that you also must be baptized with water in order for your sins to be washed away. And they take the statement, baptism now saves you. But look at it carefully. He says, baptism corresponding to this, corresponding in a figure. It means in a symbol. Now saves you. And then Peter specifically says, notice, not the water. Peter specifically says, it's not the water that saves you. Uh, Think back about Noah and the people in the ark. Who were the only people who didn't get wet? The people in the ark. They didn't get wet. He says, now baptism, it saves you, not the washing, not the water washing away dirt, but it is the, notice, it is the appeal to God. It's the appeal of a good conscience to God. The word appeal here means a pledge. It's a word that literally means when people would have a verbal contract, a question would be asked and the one would answer it. A question, will you do this? Answer, yes. Will you do this? Yes, it is a pledge. Today, it's the same idea that we would have in a wedding ceremony. When the people pledge each other in a covenant, man and woman, they are asked questions and they pledge themselves to each other based on what? The work that's in their heart, their love for each other, the union they already have. And they pledge themselves to that. And that is exactly what baptism is. Baptism is the way a person says the outward yes to the grace that's already been accomplished in their heart through Christ. Christ is alive in them through the resurrection of the dead, through their faith. He is alive. Christ is their living Savior. They have trusted him. And they go into the waters of baptism and they are asked about their faith and they give a public yes. Yes. 
I believe Jesus died for me. He was buried and he rose again. This is my heart's hope and trust and baptism is the pledge of that. Now I have a question for you. Has the work of grace occurred in your heart? Has that reality of Christ alive, your Lord and Savior, the one who died for you, the, died the just one for you, the unjust one, and he's brought you to God, and you know he's your Savior, he is your hope, and have you from your heart said an eternal yes to Jesus? Will you do that today? Today, now, this moment, not waiting another second, not until there's a song, not till there's the end of the service, but this very moment, will you call on Jesus? Because you have this moment. And then I would ask you the question, have you made that public pledge? Some of you here have said yes in your heart to Jesus. You have yes, trusted Jesus, but you've never sealed the pledge by publicly affirming that salvation that's in your heart through baptism. And I want to encourage you, fulfill the vows that you have made. Affirm what is in your heart. Follow the Lord in baptism. It is so incredibly important. A couple of weeks, I'm looking forward to baptizing in a service here. It'd be my privilege to stand with you as you say your yes to the work that Jesus has done in your heart. Well, our time's gone. But Jesus brought an eternal glorification. I want you to see that. What did Jesus accomplish by his suffering? Stay focused. You know, we can, we can get off and it's important to find out who are these angels? Where's this prison? How did Jesus go there? What's all that about? And, and this baptism, all that's important and I trust that you have followed me on that. But the big point is this, that Jesus accomplished God's purposes through his suffering. He accomplished the purpose of salvation. He accomplished the, person, the purpose of vindication over the powers of darkness. And now he's going to accomplish eternal glorification. Look at verse 22. This Jesus who went down and proclaimed the victory over the darkness... He has come up through his resurrection. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and all powers having been subjected to him. He is the great I am. Lift it up. Was he to die? It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, church, hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song we'll sing, church, Hallelujah, what a savior, what a savior, the captain of our salvation who was made complete through the things that he suffered. And my friends, suffering does that for you. Suffering brings the tested genuineness of your salvation. Suffering affirms and certifies your salvation. Suffering brings vindication through Christ and his power. We overcome in the face of suffering and we overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And suffering is going to bring our ultimate 
glorification. The Bible says, I am persuaded that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to what? The glory that will be revealed in us. Suffering for Christ, for his testimony and his glory. I ask permission to share this. One of our fine, fine teenagers, Isaac Scott. You may know Isaac as he's played the violin here many times on the platform. His dad who plays the guitar and sings. Jeff, his mother, Suzanne, brothers and sisters here. Brother and sisters. This week, he went through some testing at Vanderbilt and has found that he has a very, very serious form of cancer. And I want you to pray for him and Jeff and Suzanne, the family. But I want you to listen to the words of an 18-year-old warrior. His prayer, God, don't take away this pain until I can learn what you want me to learn. The grace of God in suffering. Lord, I pray that we will recognize that you, Lord Jesus, have triumphed in suffering and you lead us to triumph through suffering. And we thank you that you have brought salvation to us. You've brought vindication and victory over the powers of darkness. And you've brought glorification to God and to his people forever. Through the things that you suffered, we bless you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, give us your grace and wisdom that led by an 18-year-old young man, we could say, Lord, don't take away the pain until I've learned what you want me to learn. Let's stand together and maybe you just like to come and pray. Uh, maybe pray for Isaac or maybe you're just something you need to pray, Lord, I'm in this. You know the trial, you know the pain. Maybe you're coming on behalf of someone else. Maybe you just need to kneel where you are. I don't know. But as we sing, I encourage you to come. I encourage you to come into God's presence. Let's sing together. Lord, I offer my life to you.